We do not follow man-made fancy or fable, but the word of the living God. He alone has claim to our hearts and our allegiances. Let us heed him as he speaks from his word. Today's passage comes from Revelation 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. All right. First of all, you are dismissed to worship kid style. Kids fifth grade and under, welcome to head on out. Parents are also, of course, welcome to keep kids with you in church. And let's pray as we turn to the word of the Lord. God and Father, I just give you thanks for the vision of your glory that we see here in this chapter and pray that you would speak from it to our hearts. Pray that you might be with all of us, although we're sinful, as we sit under your word. Be with me, though I am sinful, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he first comes to John the Baptist in John 1, this is John's declaration. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That theme 
Jesus, the Lamb of God, is one of those big biblical themes that weaves all the way through Scripture. Back, probably starting with Abraham and Isaac, and the Lamb that's given as a substitute for Isaac, and through the sacrificial system of Israel, and ultimately through Jesus and his work. That is a central theme of the Bible, and it is a central theme of the book of Revelation. John, as he writes his apocalypse, in many ways writes this book that centers on the Lamb of God. And so this week we're picking up in Revelation 5 and really the second half of this vision. The first half we talked about last week in Revelation 4, as John has this vision of the heavenly throne room of God. But now we get this new figure, this Lamb of God that enters. And as we think about what we see here in this chapter, there's three really crucial things we learn about Jesus, the Lamb of God. And they are that the scroll is the Lamb's, and that the lion is the Lamb, and that creation is the Lamb's. And if that sounds a little cryptic to you, let's go ahead and dive in and just talk about what we mean by each of those realities. First of all, John tells us the scroll is the Lamb's. Again, Um, In Revelation 4, we got this figure of God the Father, and that's where we pick up, starting in verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So he sees God the Father sitting on the throne, and now he sees in his hand this scroll or book. The Greek word could mean either. I'd love to talk about the nuance of that, but none of you will care. So just picture a scroll, but if your Bible says book, you know, if you know, it could be either one. Um, that, that, that is something with all kinds of Old Testament background, from Isaiah 29 and Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 12. And basically what you need to know is that in the Old Testament, there's this image of this scroll that represents God's great plan of judgment and salvation. Like it's kind of the whole thing of God's plan to judge evil and save his people and redeem the world. We've got this scroll that represents that. So we see this scroll... But it's sealed with seven seals. Seals were a common thing in the ancient world, and they were kind of like a security device almost, actually. Like a king or someone um, would—they'd imprint with wax this seal that had their, like, symbol in it. And that was supposed to say, unless you're supposed to open this, don't open it, and we're going to know if you do, right? You'd crack it open, and then you wouldn't be able to fix it. Um, And so this seal is—these seven seals are on the scroll— And the problem, as they say, is no one is worthy to open it. Which, again, that doesn't mean they're not strong enough. I think people (laughs) have this image that they're like, and can't open the scroll. But instead it's just saying, this is sealed by the seal of God, the divine king of heaven. And in terms of who has business breaking these seals, the answer initially is nobody. And so in the next few verses, we read about how no one is able to open them. Until in verse 5, we meet this new figure who is worthy to open the scroll. So if you read verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We're going to come back to those titles in just a minute, but the thing to know is this is a way of talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king. Um, And so John is seeing Jesus as worthy to open the seals, And then that becomes even more apparent in verse 6, where it says that between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. 
where John sees this figure of this Lamb of God that was slain. And again, just like in John chapter 1 in the Gospel, just like throughout Scripture, this is Jesus. And on the one hand, he is standing among, like in the middle of this scene, right? He's within, we said there's three circles last week. There's God on his throne, and then there's the living creatures, and then there's the elders. And Jesus is right here in the middle, which along with the songs that are sung to him is an image of his being God. But he's also this lamb who was slain, which is an image of his work in the world. And we're going to talk more about all that symbolism of the lion and the lamb in a minute. But first, before we get there, we just need to notice maybe the most important point of the first half of this chapter, which is that it is only the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. So somehow Jesus is the one, the means by which this scroll is opened, by which God's plan for judgment and salvation, for the redemption of the world, is going to happen. Without Jesus, none of that can come and that's the place we need to start in this chapter, because before we start talking about how this specifically works out in the book of Revelation, the first thing we need to just do is answer the question, what do we make of Jesus? How does Jesus fit in to our faith? Maybe in particular, the contrast I think that we're presented with here in Revelation 5 is the question of whether we view Jesus as only a good moral example or whether we view Jesus as the Lamb who opens the seals and of the scroll of God's work of salvation. Do we focus only on Jesus as kind of an example, or do we recognize in him this figure who actually accomplishes God's plan of redemption in the world? Now, when I ask that question, to be clear, Jesus is an example, right? It's not, it's not that there isn't a sense in which we should look at Jesus as an example. We're called to imitate Christ— but what can happen is that it is easy for us sometimes as Christians uh, to make Jesus only an example, to talk about him only in those terms, how he provides us with um, this example and fail to talk about him as the Lamb of God, who is sacrificed for our sins and actually accomplishes God's plan in the world. Christianity, while it does call us in the end to follow God's example— always, or Jesus's example, always starts with Jesus's work. In Christianity, what is true, what Jesus accomplishes, always drives the things that we're called to do. And if we don't have that what is true part first, if we don't have the lamb being slain and rising again, if we don't have God's plan of salvation for the world, and we just jump to the what to do, we will actually misunderstand what Christianity is saying. It instead would tell us that what is true in Jesus is actually the thing that then calls us, after we embrace it, to begin to follow his example. So the first question we have to ask when we encounter this Lamb of God is, are we receiving and resting on his work as the foundation of our hope? Are we receiving and resting on his work, his death and resurrection, as the foundation of our hope? Because we, if we aren't doing that, and the things we're going to say in a minute, which do involve some of following the Lamb's example. But none of that works if we don't first rest and receive Jesus. I mean, the best way I can think to illustrate that is just this. And this is a kind of illustration that preachers use sometimes that I feel like is kind of trivial. But bear with me. Um, imagine that you're in a whole bunch of debt, right? Like you're, you, you know, you're in over your head, can't even see the light. Um, you know, no hope of paying it off. You're in enormous debt. 
and some friend, some person comes along who has a lot of money, and they decide to fix things for you, and I don't know, they write you a check for like a million dollars or something, right? Pay off all your debt, give you, give you lots of money. They come along to write this check for you. Now, when that happens, there's two things that should happen, right, if, if someone did that to you. One is that you should um, look at that and see in that a good example that changes how you live. You should, right? You should say, wow, like, look at this money that this guy's given me. Look at this example of generosity. I should seek to be responsible with my money. I should seek to be generous to other people. You should follow that example. However, that's only going to work for you if first you cash the check. <laughs> if you don't take the, the, the gift that he's actually giving you, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how hard, you know, you work and how generous you're being and how responsible you suddenly start to be. Like, the debt collectors are still going to come, right? And you're still not going to have anything to give them. And so what you need to do is start, what we must all do is start with that work of Jesus for us. And then, yes, follow the example, but start with that work of the Lord. Or to put it one other way for us. Um, imagine that all the moral teachings and outward rituals of Christianity stayed the same, right? Imagine that we still had all the, you know, go to church and stand and sit and, you know, do, follow the kind of moral teachings of Christianity. Um, but Jesus just wasn't a part of the story, right? Imagine, imagine that for a minute and ask yourself the question, would that make a difference to how you live as a Christian? Right? If all the moral stuff and all the like rhythms of life stayed the same, but Jesus just didn't pop up in the story, there was no death for your sins, no resurrection from the dead, would that make a difference to how you experienced life as a Christian? If the answer to that question is no, then, then come talk to me. Right? Re-examine that as your starting point. Because while we're going to talk in a minute about this calling that we have to follow the Lamb in certain ways as an example, God's plan turns on the work of Jesus, right? Before any change in us, God's plan hinges on the work of Jesus Christ, this Lamb of God. And if our faith doesn't hinge on that, if it doesn't turn on that, then we've missed the whole thing. So first of all, we see that the scroll is the Lamb. That our foundational hope is that the Lamb is the one who is accomplishing God's great plan of salvation in the world. That said, tied up in that truth, is the second truth. A way that we are called to see the Lamb as a sort of example. Something else we're meant to learn from him. And to see that, let's go back and read verse 5 again. The elder says to John not to weep because the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered and so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, one of the themes that pops up in the book of Revelation, we saw this back in chapter 1, if you maybe remember, but it's that there's a number of places where there's this contrast between what John hears and what John sees. And in that contrast between what he hears and what he sees, we're supposed to learn something really important. And so what John hears is this declaration of the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, which are images from Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11 of Jesus as this king, this Davidic king, the, the Lion King, right? Apologies to Disney. But, but that's, that's what he hears announced. And then here's what he sees in verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All right, 
So John sees a lamb. Now it has seven horns, probably means it has like perfect power, and seven eyes means extending the fullness of the Spirit and has God's full presence and insight. But the point is that it is a lamb, and more than that, a lamb who had been slain, a lamb who had been sacrificed and killed. What John hears is see the lion of Judah, and what John sees is this lamb who was slain. Key thing to recognize there, and this actually becomes one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation, is that the lion is the lamb. The lion is the lamb. And you might be wondering, okay, how is that a key? Why does that matter? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. First, when we say the scroll is the lamb, what we're saying is that Jesus is essential in accomplishing the plans of God. He's the one who accomplished God's plan of salvation. But here in this, when we talk about the lion and the lamb, what we're talking about is how he accomplished it. What is the posture of the lamb as he accomplishes his work? Which is to say that Jesus Christ has conquered is conquering and will conquer. That is true. We have this hope in Jesus' power, but we also need to recognize the manner in which he conquered. That um, the conquest isn't by his power to destroy, but it is by his power to save. His weapon is not the sword that the world wields. His weapon is instead the cross, um, his sacrifice, and it is his conquest, right? His victory is accomplished through his death and resurrection. Revelation spells that out in verse 9, where it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So again, why is Jesus worthy to open this scroll? Right? What is it about Jesus that allows him to conquer and accomplish God's plan of judgment and salvation? It is that he was slain and that by his blood he ransomed these people. Not because of the nations he could destroy, not because of the enemies he could <laughs> annihilate. It was because of the fact that he himself was destroyed under the, the plan and hand of God that allows him to redeem these people and is why he was ransomed. Let me try to spell out why that matters. Think about it like this. Jesus is a king, and he has established the kingdom. That's something that you hear a lot in the church. We are a part of that kingdom. We are the kingdom of God. But one of the great temptations that we face as Christians is that because Jesus is king, and because we are a kingdom, we start to use the logic of this world's kings and kingdoms to think about how we're supposed to live on earth. How do kingdoms rule in our world? They rule through power and through violence. That's how kingdoms in this age work. I know, I mean, in our world, we like to dress it up, right? You know, I mean, we like to think that it's through sort of popular consensus and human rights, and those are wonderful things. But at the end of the day, there's a reason, right, that we've got 5,000 nukes and spend half a trillion dollars a year on the military. Like, there's a sort of underlying power of violence that lies behind all the kingdoms of this world. And the great temptation of the church is for us as Christians to think that Jesus' power works in the same way. That that same kind of approach to power is how the kingdom of God advances. 
Now, obviously, we can fall into that trap when we talk about politics, and I'm just not even going to go there this morning, although if you've never thought about that reality, right, it's worth thinking about it. But think about this. Think about how we as Christians talk about culture. Like, I hear people talk about a culture war. Um, We discuss who's winning and losing this culture war, and I feel like all too often the logic people end up using is the logic of this world. It's about who has the power and who can kind of destroy their opponents, right? Who has that ability to do violence? Maybe not physical violence, right? But when we start to lose, we think, well, we should fight dirtier and be tougher, right? We engage in that worldly logic. Or think about our individual relationships. I mean, what happens when I am wronged? I want blood, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's how I operate in the world. I feel safe and secure in relationship when I'm the person with power, and I feel uncertain and uncomfortable in the relationship when I feel like people have power over me, and my temptation is to try to use this sort of relational and emotional violence, right, to, to be the person that's in power in relationships. Here's the thing about all of that. The kingdom of Jesus is not just different because Jesus is the king rather than some worldly person being king. The kingdom of Jesus is different because it has a whole different way of understanding how power works and what kingship means. When we look at our king, Jesus, we expect to see a lion, and what we see is the lamb who was slain, who himself was the sacrifice for his enemies. And that's how he won the victory. One of the central themes of the book of Revelation is that that pattern of the lion being the slain lamb, that pattern that we see in Jesus, that is supposed to be the pattern of the church in the world. That the church is conquering in the world, right? We participate in Jesus' conquest, but just like we get to participate in that conquest and victory, we also participate in the posture that Jesus adopted as he proceeded. That posture of the lamb who is being slain. Repeatedly in the book of Revelation, one of the themes we will see is how the power and violence of the world is overcome not through us having power, but through us submitting, and in a sense being killed and destroyed and beaten down by the power of the world, and then experiencing a sort of spiritual resurrection that leads to life and wholeness on the far side. That is how the victory comes to the church. It is, in a sense... This picture in the book of Revelation that we're being called not to lion power, but to lamb power. To lamb power. We're called to see Jesus in an upside-down way as related to people. I mean, think about this famous passage in Matthew 20, where Jesus talks about how we should relate to people. First he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So that's the command, that's the famous story. But then notice what he goes on to say in the next verse. Here's why. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Which is to say, when we ask, what should our posture be in the world? How should we move through the world? The answer is, look at the cross of Jesus— And that's actually the pattern for how we're supposed to relate to the powers of this world. So that leaves us with the question, what does it look like for us to actually do that? To have that kind of cross-shaped posture, that kind of lamb power as we live in the world and interact with others. 
first, let me just try to tell you a story that in my mind is one of the, s- the stories I think back to a lot. Um, this is when, when Elizabeth and I were living in St. Louis years ago, and I was in seminary, um, there was this debate taking place. And I didn't get to go to this debate, but a bunch of my friends from seminary went. Um, and it was over um, the church and homosexuality, and particularly whether kind of the church's views on homosexuality were hateful and cruel, or whether they were, you know, I mean, or, or whether they weren't. And um, and I know, think you know when I tell you that that debate was happening, that it sounds like a recipe for a really ugly event, right? Um, which is why I didn't go. But what ended up happening was the guy who was supposed to be defending the Christian view, who frankly, I kind of knew who he was, and it probably would have been an ugly event, but he ended up getting sick like a week before, and this guy got asked to fill in as pastor. Um, but the guy who was opposed to the kind of traditional Christian view um, my friends, as they told me about it, he was mad when he said it. And he, like, comes out swinging, and he talks about um, the church's role in the 80s in perpetrating injustice against the gay community and about the AIDS epidemic and how people just abandoned people to that and his own experiences growing up in Christianity and being ostracized um, when he came out. And then this pastor who was tasked with defending the, the Christian view came up. Um, and here's what he did. He got up, and he looked at the moderator and said, instead of my opening statement, do you mind if I just talk with my, you know, uh, with this other guy for a minute? And the moderator's like, I guess if you want to, like, cede time, you know, like, you can do that. And he proceeds to just start asking him questions about his experiences and about the kind of hurts that he received at the hand of Christians. And then the pastor said to him, brother, I am so sorry that that happened. That should not have happened walked across the stage with tears in his eyes, and he embraced this other guy, and they ended up standing there up on the stage, weeping and holding each other and hugging. And needless to say, the debate was over, right? Now that pastor, who in the last minute was asked to step in, there is a real sense in which he won that debate, right? You can't come out of that and think that his views were hateful or cruel, but he won it not by winning, right? He didn't come and try to defeat his opponent. He didn't come and try to destroy his arguments. He came in a real sense by accepting and bearing that person's arguments on himself, right? And acknowledging the wrongness that the people on his side had committed and repenting and apologizing. That is a cross-shaped way to find the truth. So the question we need to ask is where in our lives we are trying to fight and seek the true in the world's way, and what it looks like for us to instead take that posture of forgiveness. I mean, most of us aren't in public debates, right? But that family member or neighbor that you've been feuding with, that you've been fighting so hard with to try to protect what's yours, what would it look like for you instead to just say, you know what, it's okay. Like, this is unjust, but I am going to give you what you want. I'm going to seek to bless you instead of fighting back. Or that coworker who's out to get you, right? What if instead of like playing office politics and trying to, you know, to keep yourself safe, you just started praising them and telling people good things about them and helping their projects to succeed and trying to bless them? It's actions like that that reflect the posture of the lamb. The lamb who was slain by his enemies as a means of saving and changing lion is the lamb, and we're called to adopt that posture. So that's the second thing we learn about the lamb. 
we haven't done this text justice if we don't reflect on a third truth that really is what helps us to do the second one. And that is that creation is the Lord's. All of creation belongs to him. So look again at verse 9, that first song of praise. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus is worthy to accomplish the plan of God, the plan of judgment and salvation. And notice that this first song is sung by the living creatures and elders around the throne. Just like they sang to the Father, that the Father is glorious and worthy, they sing to the Lamb, to the Son, that he is glorious and worthy. Now pick up the second song, right? And now notice that it's the whole heavens, millions and millions of angels take up the tune, and here's what they sing. They sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the first song says, you are worthy because you are slain. And then the second song says, and seriously, you are worthy. Worthy meaning that you are, that he deserves all power, right? The lamb deserves all power. Every king and congressman and warlord and voter ought to say, whatever power I have in the universe belongs to the lamb and will be used to serve him. And he deserves all wealth, right? Every dollar and every national treasury and business's ledger and in my bank account um, is rightfully his. And he deserves all wisdom, that all of the thinking and insight and every book that people write should ultimately be about glorifying him and serving his kingdom. And he deserves all might. That's might both in this, the worldly, like, you know, militaries ought to exist only in reverence to the lamb. And for me, every, you know, my muscles, small as they are, ought to flex to do his will. He deserves all honor. That word also means sort of price or value. We should esteem him as the most valuable thing. Um, See, even if we sold everything else that we owned, that it was worth it if we were to gain him. He deserves all glory. Just like the Father, so with the Son, all renown and all fame in the universe should belong to him. And he deserves all blessing. Every good thing that every human being can say ought to be said of the Lamb. He is worthy. And then one last song. John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So now it is everything that exists. Everything that exists in all of creation is singing praise to Jesus the Lamb. That he is worthy and everything belongs to him. And when we think about that image, we should feel a tension when we think about how that relates to the world as we experience it. On the one hand, this image, this vision that John is having, is true of the world right now, right? Remember, this is a pulling back of the curtain on our world to show us what's really true. And it is true in one sense that right now, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has all glory and honor and dominion and power. Because he has been slain, because he is God there in the throne room. But in another sense, that is not currently reality as we experience it. It's not currently how the world, as we experience it around us, works. 
All you have to do is turn on the news, right, to see that. People are fighting with each other for power rather than laying it down at the feet of Jesus. People are seeking glory and honor for themselves rather than giving it to Jesus. And by people, of course, I mean us too, right? Like, even in our own lives, we feel that tension where we're like, really all strength and all wealth and all wisdom and all glory belongs to, you know, Jesus the Lamb? You know, I believe that, but I also recognize that there's many ways that my own life falls short of making that belief. Every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we start with these petitions. We say, may your name be holy, first, which is what hallowed be your name is. May your name be holy, and may your kingdom come, and may your will be done. We pray those three requests to God, and then we say about all three of them, may those things be true on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our way of acknowledging that tension. That in one sense, in heaven, Jesus is on the throne. And his name is holy and exalted. And he is powerful and reigning. And in another sense, on earth, that has not yet been made a reality. Our hope is Christian. is rests in the fact that that reality that is true of the Lamb right now in heaven, that creation belongs to the Lamb right now in heaven, that that is coming true on earth as the gospel advances and the kingdom is built, and that will become fully true on earth when the Lamb returns. Which is to say that while Jesus is the Lamb and he is conquering through Lamb power, he is truly conquered. Listen to how Paul, the apostle, describes the place that Jesus now occupies. In Philippians chapter 2, he's writing to the Philippians, and first he talks about Jesus' humility, being humbled to death, even to death on a cross. And really he's saying like, hey, lamb power, you need to pursue this example of lamb power. But then he says this, coming out of that, he says, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again to break the power of sin. And that provides us with an example. But our hope is not complete if we don't recognize that he is also coming to complete that salvation again. In Hebrews 9, it says it like this. It says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Jesus Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus has accomplished our salvation in his death for sin, but he is coming to fulfill and bring to completion that salvation. And believing that is actually the way that we then are able to have that cross-shaped pattern in our lives. When we take that posture of the lamb, when we surrender our rights and lay down our lives for those who might be our enemies, might seek to do us wrong, here is what we are actually doing. If we're doing it truly, what we're actually doing is saying, I am going to trust in the power of Jesus to vindicate my cause rather than trusting in my own ability to do it. I'm going to trust in Jesus' power to vindicate me rather than trust in myself. Say you do that. Say, we mentioned like a coworker, right? You start to seek their good and serving them rather than trying to like beat them back and win in the office politics battle. If you do that, one of two things will happen in the present, right? One of two things. Either one, maybe Jesus will work. 
and that person will be brought to repentance and see your kindness and you know it will soften their heart and they'll respond with love and there will be a beautiful transformation that happens that might happen or two maybe they won't and you'll open your arms to them and they'll stab you a whole bunch of times and make life really hard for you and take advantage of you because creation is the lambs because jesus's ultimate victory is coming and we have hope in that we are able to say, I'm going to take that posture of the lamb, knowing full well that either one of those things could happen. Believing, hopefully, that there's a chance that God can use this to bring the kingdom right now to earth as it is in heaven. But also trusting that even if he doesn't, and even if we join Jesus in a real sense in suffering in that moment of love, that it's still okay. Because the kingdom is still coming. And creation will ultimately all be brought under the authority of the So one last question, and as we close, if we need to believe that creation is the lambs to do that, how do we grow in that belief? The answer, big picture, is that we need to constantly be doing things that remind us of the reality that the lamb is on the throne and his kingdom is coming. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But the one that naturally arises from this text is that we need to sing. We need to make space to sing songs just like these throngs in the heavenly courts to the Lord, praising the Lamb and acknowledging that he is worthy. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like, it is weird, right, from like a worldly perspective that like on Sundays and in our lives we would like sing songs about Jesus and God, right? I mean, maybe we've all been around church too long to realize it, but it's weird, right? Like people don't do that in their normal lives about stuff. The reason we do that The purpose that that has when we gather together for worship is that what we're doing in that moment is actually trying to act out what is true in heaven so that it changes and grows our hearts so that we can believe that it's true on earth, right? That when our voices are joined together singing these true things about God in a way that lifts our hearts to feel the reality and truthfulness of them, the purpose of us doing that is actually that that then uh, it's like it's like heaven is actually in that moment coming to earth in a sense that that reality of what's really true is breaking in and becoming visible in our lives. If that's the case, two things briefly about how we sing. One is that that means that we should sing songs of praise to God like we mean it. <laughs> um, you know, we should we should recognize. I mean, when when the when the twenty four elders are falling down and pouring out their bowls of incense before the Lamb, it's not like. Worthy is the Lamb who is, right? You know, I mean, there's a clear heart engagement that's happening in that moment. Um, I don't know if you ever think about this when you stand and sing, and I mean this regardless of whether you can carry a tune or not, right? Um, Like heartfeltness is much more important than musicianship in this sense. But, um, But when we sing God's praise together, I've actually got a job to do. Like I and each of us in our own little part are actually making that heavenly reality manifest in a way that's meant to build up and encourage the church. We should sing like we mean it, and we should sing in a way that engages our hearts and minds with the glory of God. Thinking not about, like, how um, bad or good the musicians are up front. Bad if it's me playing the drums and good for everyone else, just to be clear. Um, um, Not thinking about the musicians up front or, you know, whatever else is going on, but seeking to have our hearts and our minds be engaged with the truths we are singing and with the glory of the God we're singing to. Opening our hearts to that. That that is one way, as we do that, in our weeks and in our days, that we are actually helped to believe what is really true in heaven right now. That the Lamb is King, 
and that we are called to follow him and his way and power in the world. And so I know no better way to close than for us to stand up together and sing. And we're actually going to sing two songs here as we close um, that are both songs straight out of Revelation 4 and 5. So this is our chance to really embody that. Let me pray for us, and you can go ahead and stand. Let's, God and Father, that you would help us now as we sing your praises, that our hearts and our tongues would be just making manifest here on earth what is true in heaven. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all praise and honor. Amen.